Welcome to Retirementals, a podcast that dives headfirst into the issues facing the financial sector at the intersection of investment, technology and financial advice. Hosted by Abraham Oksanya, you can expect raw honesty, critical analysis and energetic interviews. Here is your host, Abraham Oksanya. Hello and welcome to Retirementals. It's really great to be here today. I hope you've all been enjoying the wonderful winter weather, <laughs> you know, here in the UK. I am really um, excited about my guest today. He is the Mick Jagger of retirement income research. I am talking about none other than my friend, Dr. Wade Fow. Uh, Wade is a professor of retirement income planning at the American College of Financial Services. Uh, and Director of Retirement Research at McLean Asset Management. Uh, Wade, welcome to Retirementals. Well, thanks, Abraham. It's great to talk to you again. And and like you said about Mick Jagger, I don't know if you realized, in the United States, there's an Alliance for Lifetime Income. That's actually the sole sponsor of the Rolling Stones tour that's going on in the United States right now. (laughs) They're really pushing the idea of the baby boomers who go to the Rolling Stones concerts to plan for their retirements. (laughs) Oh, wow. That is incredible. What an idea. Wow. That's that's really good. Really good stuff. So I should say it's been a while and you've made an impact on my career and our business, you know, Timeline wouldn't be here today if not for, um, you know, a lot of your research work um, alongside a, a couple of others in the in the profession. But you, uh, my friend, has, has been, have been in, incredibly influential, um, you know, in, in my journey, uh, you know, in, in this in this profession. So I want to start with with a, a, a thank you. Um, and congratulations on your new book. Well, thank you. Yeah, and it's great to see your success and the success of Timeline and everything you're doing to bring that retirement strategy discussion to the UK. And yeah, thank you, thank you. So your 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 new book uh, is titled Retirement Planning Guidebook: Navigating the Important Decisions for retirement. So this will be your fourth book, if I remember correctly. So you wrote one essentially on the safety first framework. There's another one on, uh, you know, equity release or home equity and using that as part of the retirement planning. And then the giant, there was one, you know, before this um, on the, uh, essentially on the uh, probability-based idea to retirement planning or sustainable withdrawal rate framework. And this is what, what, supposed to put everything together? Yes, this is my fourth book, but it was really always intended to be my first book. It's the book I've been trying to write for the past 10 years. But as I was writing it, it just all these other books spun out as separate entities. So it, it was always, this is the retirement planning guidebook to try to focus on all the different aspects of building a retirement plan. And yeah, just as I was writing it, I kept having side books coming out of it. But now... The final book is done and ready, and <laughs> it's it's the longest book by far. It tries to cover everything. Can we skip the first three and just read this one? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you really can. In that regard, read this. This one should be first on the list, and then if you want to dive deeper into some of the other topics, because this book summarizes the other books. 
then you have that opportunity if you'd like to explore further. Mm -hmm. Good stuff. So let, let's start from, uh, you know, the, the title of the book, Retirement Success. How do you define that? Well, it, it's really uh, actually a, a whole bunch of issues because one of the areas I started to address in this book is just the non-financial aspects of retirement success. But it's partly on the financial side, ensuring you have the resources to meet your financial goals in retirement so that you can enjoy retirement and not feel worried that you're going to run out of money or all these other potential issues with worried about what may happen with long-term care and, and everything that can go on, but also on the non-financial side to have purpose in retirement, to have a reason to get up in the morning. A lot of people, their whole identity is connected to work. And so when they retire, they're dealing not just with the change in their financial picture, but also the change in their, their whole lifestyle and being able to have an alternative and something that gives you a motivation each day becomes really important as well. So it's, it really encompasses re retirement success financially, non-financially, just having an enjoyable retirement and getting the most out of life. That's the end goal at the, <laughs> ultimately. Indeed, indeed. So as far as I understand it, the, the big idea um, in this book is this concept of retirement income style. Talk a little bit about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's how it starts. It's chapter one, and it's work I've been doing with Alex Merguia, where, as you stated in the past, I've focused a lot on there's these two different schools of thought, the, the probability-based approach and the safety-first approach. And we've never really had a way to help people identify like which of these approaches will work best for them. And so that led to a research project that I now say step one of retirement planning is identify your retirement income style. And it's a questionnaire to help understand, like, how do you think about retirement? How do you think about your preferences for these different factors? Are you comfortable relying on the stock market? Would you prefer to have contractual protection supporting your retirement spending? Do you want to keep your options open as much as possible? Or are you more comfortable committing to a strategy that you know can work, even if it may limit some of the options for what you could do differently in the future? And uh, as we look to just how people talk about retirement and, and see these kind of spectrums of here's one side of the spectrum, here's the other side, and, and how do people feel, we started to look at what are the factors that are part of that and we found about eight initially that we thought might work. And then doing the statistical analysis of asking this to 1,500 people that were part of the retirement researcher community, my website, uh, identified six factors that actually can help to explain a style. And two of them are more important and, and the other four are more secondary. But together, they tell the story of how to match people to retirement strategies. And because we know there's different strategies. There's a, it's, it, it goes by many names. We call total returns, which is systematic withdrawals from an investment portfolio. There's time segmentation, which is also known as bucketing, where you just invest differently for different time horizons. And then there's like essential versus discretionary approaches, which are more about building a lifetime income floor for your basic expenses in retirement. And we divide that into two categories. The income protection is about using more simple income annuities to do that. And risk wrap is about, at least in the United States, there's been this whole development of their deferred annuities, the annuities, but you don't have to actually annuitize the contract, but you add an optional living benefit that can support a lifetime income. And then if you ever outlive the value in that contract, 
then it locks in an annuity income for the rest of your lifetime. And, and so four general retirement strategies. And the, the questionnaire is de deter, um, created to identify how do you score in those six different factors? And then how do those combine together to point someone towards one of these strategies as a starting point as something that should resonate best for their retirement? So this is interesting. So as far as the strategy is concerned, you put those in four buckets, right? Mm -hmm. I, is that? And then to, is this a quantum from, well, basically annuitize everything to uh, put everything in the market, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, is that the quantum? And then to identify where an individual sits um, on that quantum, there are six important factors which we would would dive into in a sec. Is that how to think about it, or am I got this completely wrong? Well, mostly uh, we do. It's more about how do you want to source your reliable income, which is when you talk about someone's retirement budget divided between like we call it longevity and lifestyle, but it's like the core essential expenses is longevity. And then the more discretionary types of expenses is lifestyle. And so, yeah, that, what, what you were saying there on the one side, it would be use simple income annuities to fully build out a lifetime income support for your core longevity expenses. And then you can still invest on top of that, but it would be more about using annuities for your core expenses versus, yeah, on the other side, the total returns, that's the whole use a well-diversified multi-asset class investment portfolio and systematically take take distributions, and you're comfortable doing that not just for discretionary spending, but also for your more essential expenses as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, we'll come to bucketing in a sec, but isn't that just an extension of the systematic withdrawal strategy? It's a forge, in my view, which we'll come back to. But am I right to think of it that way, or no? It is, and that something that came out of this that was really interesting is. The more natural strategies are the, the total return systematic withdrawals approach and the income protection, simple income annuities, plus an investment on top of it approach. And that's the natural correlations are there. It's uh, the total returns is for people who are comfortable with the stock market and want to keep their options open. Income protection is for people who want contractual protections and are comfortable committing to a strategy. And then these two other strategies are more of a behavioral story. They're not natural, consistent preferences, and, and they're explained that way. So that's time segmentation. It's an investments approach, but it's dealing with this idea that people, these are individuals who want contractual protections, but they also want to keep their options open. And that can be hard to do. They want to eat their cakes yeah. and have it. Is that what right, <laughs> right. And so the financial yeah. services world to accommodate that, develop this idea of time segmentation or bucketing which is you, you use, I mean, it doesn't have to be individual bonds, but that would give you the most contractual protection. But you use like bonds or fixed income assets for short-term expenses. And then you have your growth investment portfolio earmarked to cover longer-term expenses. And that's, it's a behavioral strategy. It's a way to feel comfortable. So there is a lot of reliance on the stock market with this strategy still. It does believe that stocks will grow over the long run. But nonetheless, you have this front-end bond piece. So you kind of have this relief that you know, well, even if the stock market crashes, I have a, a five-year window or whatever you build 
where I don't have to sell stocks. And so I can wait for a market recovery. And some people that, I mean, for me personally, that doesn't resonate. I, I, I personally wouldn't feel comfortable with that, but it resonates for some people. And that's where, if that's your retirement style, if you're comfortable thinking in those terms, that's where time segmentation can open up as a viable strategy for your retirement. Okay, so let's talk about these, these six distinct um, you know, areas or properties, I don't know, attributes that you, you nail down in your research. What, what are they and how do we think about them? Mm-hmm. So we designed the RISA matrix that would be the, ma- the way you see the main results based around two of the six factors that were just shown with our, it's called exploratory factor analysis, where you, you just analyze the data. We, two of the factors that were most important. The, the, one, the one that showed the most like distinct importance was this optionality commitment. Do you want to keep options open as much as possible, or are you more comfortable committing to a strategy that you know will work? And then the other primary factor, we gave the name that I've been using for a long time, which was probability-based versus safety-first. Probability-based is comfort relying on market growth, relying on the stock market to fund your retirement. Safety first is preferring some sort of contractual protection behind what you're doing and using risk pooling potentially through insurance to help fund a longer retirement. So that's the two core factors. And then the four secondary factors that help tell the story, the the most natural to think about, and the one I thought would probably be more important than it was, it's this idea of accumulation versus distribution. Accumulation is you keep the same mindset as pre-retirement about focusing on accumulating your portfolio, maximizing your risk-adjusted returns, having the biggest like, like portfolio growth that you can subject to your uh, risk tolerance, your ability to endure market volatility versus distribution, which is you, you're focused more on predictable income. You're not as worried as much about having the highest risk-adjusted return from the portfolio that can suggest you might have more volatile spending power. You'd rather focus on having more predictable spending power if you have a distribution mindset. So then the, the others, uh, we have front-loading versus back-loading, which is an important one. Front-loading is, I prefer to focus on getting the most enjoyment out of my early retirement years because I know that I'm still alive, I'm still healthy, I don't know what the future will bring. So I really want to focus on the present, even if that means having to make cuts later on in retirement. And someone with a backloading preference, they're worried about living, outliving their wealth. So they're going to be willing to, you don't want to over-sacrifice, but at least have a more conservative spending rate early in retirement so that they can better protect that if they do live a long time, they'll still be able to maintain their lifestyle no matter how long they live. Then we've got true liquidity versus technical liquidity. <laughs> so technical liquidity is how most people think of liquidity. It's like if I have a... a a brokerage account, if, if I can go into my account, take distributions, there's no constraints on me, that's technical liquidity. True liquidity is something a little bit different in the context of retirement. It's, I may have an asset that's liquid, but if I've already earmarked it for a certain purpose, it's not really liquid for me. I mean, I could use it for something else, but then I might not be able to meet my expense that I had earmarked it for. So true liquidity is I have assets that are not earmarked for other purposes, like to meet my longevity and lifestyle expenses, to meet my legacy goals. And then that's true liquidity that I can use as reserves to cover all the unexpected things that can happen in retirement. 
So do you have a more of a true liquidity mindset where you're thinking about earmarking your assets to different liabilities and then seeing if you have something that's still available after doing that? Or do you have more of a technical liquidity mindset, which is just you have this big pot of assets and you don't really think about how they're being earmarked for different purposes. And then the, the final factor would be, and this one's a little bit more straightforward, it's just when you think about flooring and building a lifetime income, or when you think about having a floor, do you want it to be perpetual? Do you want it to last for a lifetime? Or do you think of it more like a time-based or time-segmented, which is you're willing to build out that floor over time. You don't need it to be covering your lifetime from the start. You kind of revisit the decision and build out a floor over time. So those are the six factors. And, and they just all, with the way they correlate with each other, it, it helps to tell that story about based on your scoring with these factors, it can really highlight which retirement strategy is going to resonate best with you as a starting point to think about your retirement and how you want to approach your retirement. Now a word from our sponsor. Nikki Heating Jones is the Managing Director and the Chief Investment Officer at Betafolio, the high-tech, low-cost, discretionary model portfolio manager. Typical model portfolio service costs about 36 basis points. That's in addition to the funds, the platform, you know, the advice fees. Tell us a bit about Betafolio's view and approach on fees. Well, I don't think anyone that knows us already, Abraham, would be surprised to hear me say that in a nutshell, NPS fees are too high. Um, if you include the fund charges and the platform fee that you already talked about, we get close to 1%, I think, on average for a lot of retail clients. And that's before they start paying for the financial plan, which is the part of the service that will ultimately add the most value for them in their advisor relationship and experience. Um, so, I mean, my view on fees and Betafolio's view on fees is that they have a real impact on client outcomes that needs attention. Um, and that's why we're building a scalable solution with technology that will allow us to keep costs low. And I think we also should consider the impact of these fees on advisors' businesses too. Advisors need to, to make a profit from, from their work. They need to have a viable business. And their cost bases have been rising because of regulation and the, the more costs they have to pass through to their clients for overcomplicated services in, in turn puts pressure on the advisor's own fees and, and ultimately makes it not possible for them to, to run a, a good business. So fees are really crucial um, and I'm really happy that we're in a position to be having a positive influence on the, the trends in the market. Good stuff. Thank you, Nikki. The, the... The question in my mind is that are these factors called independently of one another? And if so, can't we have conflicts? How do we deal with conflicts? So let's say that when you look at the optionality side of things, right? Optionality versus commitment. I say, I want to keep my option open, right? And then you come to the probability versus, um, you know, contractual guarantee. Then I say, oh, by the way, I want contractual guarantees. How do you deal with that sort of 
conflict when you're looking at these um, individual factors? Mm -hmm. So there are some correlations and that's where, like with total returns, that would be optionality, that would be probability-based market growth. And then that also tends to correspond towards thinking in terms of an accumulation mindset, wanting to front load spending and having a, a technical liquidity mindset as well. Uh, what you are describing there would be back to time segmentation, which is optionality, but wanting safety first contractual protections. And then also there, there is more of a true liquidity mindset and also correlated more with front loading as well. And yeah, if you're over in that quadrant of our RISA matrix, that's where time segmentation and bucketing strategies would probably resonate better. It's, it's not the natural correlations there because then but it is something that exists and, and a portion of the population will feel more comfortable with that sort of an approach. The more natural correlations then would be done with income protection, where you get the safety first contractual protections and a willingness to commit to the strategy. And then there you also have the true liquidity. You have the backloading. You have the perpetual income floor. And uh, you have a, a distribution mindset where you're focused more on predictable income. So all that together really speaks towards the idea of, of also including potentially an annuity as, as part of the retirement plan. If you have a gap in your reliable income and you don't have the sufficient assets to cover your full longevity essential expenses in retirement. And so the way you've designed these questionnaires, uh, I, you know, tell us a little bit about this, this questionnaires that you've designed to, to help the individual then identify their retirement income style. Mm -hmm. So uh, this was work that I did with Alex Merguia, who has a PhD in psychology. So in terms of the, the specific, right. like psychological, what you need to do to have a good questionnaire, that was more on his side. But we went through this process, and, and this is where the, the retirement researcher community that's part of my website was an amazing help. Uh, Alex and I mm -hmm. came up with 900 questions and then we first just asked <laughs> members of the community to, to just give their feedback on, are these good questions? Are these bad questions? Do you understand what they're saying? Could you clarify them better? And then from that, we cut it down to 300 questions. And we had a number of people then take the RISA with 300 questions. And we just kept refining yeah. it and refining it. Now, we ask a lot of other aspects, too, that goes beyond just your retirement income style. But at this point, we've got it down to if you only want to focus on those two core factors to know your style, the optionality commitment and the probability-based safety first, uh, we've got it down to 12 questions to cover just that. And if you wanted to have a better sense about those secondary factors or if you wanted to add in some of the other aspects as well, you can make the questionnaire longer. But, uh, you know, kind of if, if you're thinking more about a full questionnaire right now, it might take around 30 to 40 minutes to fill everything out. It's but you wow. could do it in as short as, as five minutes to just focus right on your RISA profile, like your core retirement style without any of the secondary factors. Good, good stuff. And so I assume that this is part of some, some sort of software. Uh, I know McLean has, you guys have, um, um, you know, in-stream as the financial planning software. Is that is that the thinking? Is this built into that or is this completely sort of separate standalone, um, you know, question there. Yeah, it, it's standalone now. It's been uh, a separate company, uh, RISA, the Retirement Income Style Awareness. And yeah, just recently, we've released it for other financial advisors to use. 
we don't currently have the, the opening right now, but we're, we're working with a number of institutions and really hope, hoping that over the next year, you'll see a lot more potential. But yeah, we now have a community of advisors who will be using it with their clients and prospects. Uh, we've been using it just like with my new retirement planning guidebook. I've, I offer a link, uh, come take the RISA. And we've had more than 800 people just take the RISA through that link already. So really, uh, there's been now thousands of people who've done this. And, and the feedback's usually been really good about, yeah, I do think this identifies my style. Thank you for helping to point out it to then cut through the chase. It's like those books I've written in the past. Well, if you are a total return or time segmentation person, you really don't need to read my safety first retirement planning book. If you are right, a income right, protection right. or risk wrap person, you really don't need to read my how much can you spend in retirement book. It helps you narrow in on what's going to be the most important for you to, to get the strategy that will work for you. And then the cynical financial advisor listening to this podcast will say, isn't that just risk profiling? Uh, well, right. So, so we have a lot to say on the topic of like a, a risk tolerance questionnaire. Uh, Go ahead. Not, I mean, there's many issues with risk tolerance questionnaires, but we can accept at face value that they somehow work to identify somebody's risk tolerance for building their investment portfolio. But they were never designed for retirement. And if you think about it, they were really designed just assuming everyone is a total return investor. And I don't know how many times I've read like advertisements from financial services companies where they start by talking about how retirement is different and the risks are different. You have longevity, the sequence of returns risk. But then at the end, they're back towards take a risk tolerance questionnaire, <laughs> build an investment portfolio. Everything is total returns. And, and so what we as a part of this retirement income style awareness, we identify different retirement concerns that people have. Some people are more worried about longevity. They're more worried about outliving their ability to fund their core retirement expenses. Other people are more worried about lifestyle. They're worried about just not being able to get the full maximum enjoyment out of retirement. Other people are worried about liquidity, worried about not having sufficient reserves to deal with everything that can happen in an unexpected manner throughout retirement. And then when we look at the re retirement income style awareness, the RISA compared to a traditional risk tolerance assessment, we find that risk tolerance questionnaires do help to explain lifestyle concerns. The, and, and that makes sense because it's total returns, investing, maximizing risk-adjusted returns, that sort of thing. But they don't help at all with explaining longevity concerns or liquidity concerns. And that's where the, the RISA factors can explain all three of those concerns in a much more systematic way. And so ultimately, we think the first step in retirement planning is to take the RISA then when you've settled on a strategy, all the strategies still include some investment component. You can still right. take a risk tolerance questionnaire to determine what should your asset allocation be in your investment portfolio. But that's not the whole story. First, you need an overall strategy for how you're going to approach retirement. Then you build out the, the investment piece as part of that. But that's not the starting point. That's more one of the, the last steps in the process, not the first step in the process. That's interesting. So the way, again, going back to the the uh, point you made earlier about you know the the RISA questionnaire helping you decide what do you really what area of the retirement plan research you really need a deep deep dive on. Would you do the same? So in other words, so you do the RISA questionnaire, and if he says if he points out the fact that actually your retirement income style is more of a, a contractual agreement type, you know, person, 
to, to secure your retirement and maybe your low on optionality um, and all that stuff. And uh, I don't know, you think about the technical liquidity, but if it points towards um, the, the um, that you need, you know, you need to secure much of your income through contractual agreements, then the need for the traditional risk profiling tool becomes pretty low or non-existent, especially if you're going to be annuitizing a significant proportion of your or your portfolio. Uh-huh. Well, with income protection, like it's for most people, they're not necessarily going to annuitize like a significant portion. I mean, it's hard to say in advance. Everyone's different, but usually, even with income protection strategies, you still have a. a if you've been saving, you're still going to have a big chunk of investment yes. assets. But yeah, that's where you can then uh, revisit the risk tolerance. It, it, it's not just risk tolerance. It's also like your risk capacity. And there's a sense that if you're income protection, well, if you were like talking to the wrong kind of advisor in that context and they just put you into a full total return investment strategy, you might never feel comfortable with that. But if you actually mm-hmm. had that layer of reliable income, now you have lots of risk capacity because your lifestyle is not subject to a market downturn. You can invest more aggressively because if you, again, no matter what happens in the markets, you have a core base of reliable income. And so you can consider your risk capacity. Then you can also consider your risk tolerance. You still need to decide how are you gonna invest this uh, diversified portfolio for your discretionary types of goals. And that's where the risk tolerance uh, questionnaire, traditional like risk profiling can still play a role in the conversation. It's just uh, like I was saying, it's not the starting point for a retirement conversation. It's more one of the, the steps you take after you've already settled on an overall strategic approach. How do you measure the effectiveness and efficiencies of all these strategies, right? So because you know, is it just a case of put a strategy in place, make sure it aligns with your style. How do you measure if they are actually working? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that that's a great question. And ultimately, I do think any of these styles are viable. I mean, I have my own personal preferences about what strategy I'd like to use. But I think so much of financial services it's like they're just advocating for one strategy or, or another. And that's often kind of when you read the consumer media, it's total returns is the way to go. They have your diversified investment portfolio and you don't need an annuity. It's too expensive or it just doesn't add anything to the plan. And so a lot of the research I've done has been about quantifying the value of risk pooling. And I call it like the risk premium versus risk pooling. The risk premium is this idea that stocks will outperform bonds and that will fund more spending than bonds alone. And then the risk pooling is the idea that with an insurance company, those who don't live as long will help subsidize payments to those who live longer, of course, helping those who live longer, but raising the standard of living for everyone in the risk pool, risk pool, because now they can spend, like they're gonna live to their life expectancy instead of being worried they might live to 95 or 100. And, and I find that it's not at all obvious that the risk premium from the stock market can do better for somebody than the risk pooling power of an annuity. That the, I, Like some of the baseline simulations I do, and for an example, it's almost a coin flip. Would a total return investing strategy beat an income protection strategy? I mean, they're, they're both viable strategies. And that's really an important starting point that any of these four general strategies are viable. And so 
you add in the behavioral piece of if if you don't feel comfortable with a strategy, it's not viable because you're probably going to make mistakes. You're going to change. If you're income protection, but you're forced into total returns, you might sell all your stock investments after a stock market downturn. And then that was not a viable strategy. That's like not the thing you should be doing. But if you start with the strategy that makes better sense to you and it's easier to stick with it, then you're less likely to make those behavioral mistakes. And like I'm saying, at the end of the day, any of the strategies can be made to work. They're all fairly similar. I, I do think there is an efficiency in including annuities as part of the plan to pool longevity risk. But I know that some people reject that and, and fine. But at the end of the day, it's not that there's such a huge difference between any of the strategies. They're all viable. And so being able to then use a strategy that you're comfortable with just makes it all the more viable for you because you're going to be able to better stick with it and not make mistakes. So that's, I mean, <laughs> the efficiency argument, it depends so much on assumptions too. It's just like sometimes we have commentators in the U.S. talking about the stock market giving you 12% returns. And if you knew that was true, total returns would be the most efficient. <laughs> but the reality is we don't know that's true. And so depending on your assumptions, but trying to make a fair comparison between different strategies. At the end of the day, the whole, all the financial services world, world is using the same underlying investments to build their strategies. And so the, at the end of the day, they're all just different ways of putting together the building blocks to, to have a strategy. That, that is profound, that point that you made that all of financial services are using the same underlying um, instruments, right? You know, annuities are based on government bonds or, you know, yeah, yeah, security, yeah, that sort of thing. And I mean, I know that there is a, there's a, um, you know, a meaningful proportion of um, equities in it. But the, the way I have always gotten comfortable, I'm going to commit the ultimate sin now that, you know, the way I have always gotten comfortable with probability-based or market-based um, um, approach to, you know, the, the systematic withdrawal approach is to say, well, if you simulate and plan your withdrawal based on, you know, what worst case scenario looks like, either using extensive historical data or using, um, um, you know, uh, sort of Monte Carlo simulation, the scenario that will end up ruining um, your retirement in that sense will probably have profound impact on people with contractual guarantees anyway. Do you agree? Uh, not necessarily all the way. Yes. I mean, there's this idea of like the 4% rule or something like that. And, and so if we had a new worst case scenario, would that completely destroy the insurance companies offering the, the safety first approaches? And the answer is really not necessarily because the it doesn't have to be an economic catastrophe for sequence of returns risk to hit a particular cohort negatively. Like if you just get bad timing where there's a general market downturn in the first few years of your retirement, it's not necessarily going to destroy the economy or put insurance companies out of business, but it could lead to you having a new kind of worst case withdrawal rate that's going to work for your specific retirement years. And, and beyond that as well, I mean, most insurance companies, at least in the United States, have fairly bond-heavy portfolios, very little equity investments. 
And so much of the story about the sequence of returns risk is if you have a high stock allocation and the stock market goes down, that's going to disrupt your retirement. But that's not necessarily going to adversely impact an insurance company, mostly fixed income assets, high reserve requirements so that they're, they've got plenty of a buffer to deal with market losses or defaulting bonds and things. Like if there's some sort of large scale systematic bond, bond default where the government is defaulting on all their different bonds, yeah, that would be an economic catastrophe where no strategy based on financial markets would, would be helpful. But just the general idea of the 4% rule not working isn't necessarily implying some sort of economic catastrophe. That's very useful. Thank you. And then, so, so now then, now that we're in that sort of, um, uh, sort of um, territory of, you know, systematic withdrawal, sustainable withdrawal rate, what's your latest thinking then around what sustainable withdrawal rate looks like today in today's environment, um, you know, with, um, say, a, a, a traditional 60-40 portfolio, for instance? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, at the end of the day, the, this kind of discussion of safe withdrawal rates, it's really just a, a research simplification to get an idea about what's sustainable spending. Because in the real world, people's budgets change over time. And not only that, but their distributions from their portfolio change because they'll have different cash flows coming in from, from other sources. The, the taxes they may have to pay each year are going to be fluctuating. So it's really just a research simplification in the United States, there's always been this idea, well, not always, but since the 1990s, uh, the 4% rule of thumb, that you could take 4% out of your portfolio in the first year of retirement, sustain that spending level with inflation growth for 30 years, and not run out of money for at least 30 years. One of the first studies I did was to just look at this internationally, that I know you're aware of that. Like, for example, if Bill Bengen, the person that designed the 4% rule with historical data, if he'd been living in the UK and, and looked at stocks and bonds there, there was no 4% rule, it would have been more like a 3.4% withdrawal rate. Uh, even if you want a 90% historical success rate, only 3.8%, still not up to 4%. And that's generally true around the world, that the 4% rule worked in the US and Canada, but not in any of the other 18 developed market countries that we have data going back to 1900 to, to be able to look at that. So that's one issue. And then it's just as interest rates have gotten so low compared to history, uh, you can't rely on historical numbers when interest rates are lower than they ever were in the historical data where those numbers worked. At the same time, stock market valuations are on the high side, and we've never had like low interest rates and high stock market valuations at the same time. And so it's not to say that something like the 4% rule won't work, but it's under a lot more strain than it ever was historically. And again, even if you go beyond the United States in your outlook, there was no 4% rule that always worked historically anyway. So I would have to say that if someone's trying to calibrate their general thinking, that something like 3% is going to be a lot more realistic than 4%. And, and I mean, it's we're talking about the market side, but also the longevity side. 30 years, this was thinking a 65-year-old couple uh, would have at least somebody living to age 95. That was in the 1990s. Today, it's almost becoming a life expectancy for a healthy 65-year-old couple. It's almost to the point where there's a 50% chance one of them is going to still be alive at 95. And so that 30-year time horizon doesn't work anymore either. So yeah, I do think you have to think about taking a haircut on the 4% rule. If you really want a withdrawal rate to link to a total return strategy that you will then uh, be comfortable really is going to work for your retirement. 
Fascinating, fascinating stuff. Um, we thank you very much for your your wisdom. So I want to wrap up with a couple of um, you know, if you like, less technical questions uh, or more personal questions, if you like, um, if if that's okay. So um, you know, what's your? I think I know the answer to this one. What's your sort of um, single biggest concern or irritation about the financial financial planning and financial advice uh, profession today? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's really, I think I might have touched upon this already, but it's just that so much of financial planning is really siloed into thinking, here's the one strategy that's best for everybody. And I mean, part of that is just some of the software out there bases everything on historical market numbers, where if if you're saying that bonds are going to average 6% a year in the future when interest rates are like 1% to 2%, that's just almost mathematically impossible. <laughs> and, and so I, I think it's important to adjust for where we are today. And that's going to tell a, a very different story about what's a sustainable strategy. And so I think if you're going to compare different retirement strategies, you have to do on an equal basis. Like if today annuity payout rates are lower because interest rates are lower. You can't compare that against historical numbers for stocks and bonds because that's, especially on the bond side, just not at all realistic when interest rates are lower. And so if there'd just be more openness or a willingness within financial planning to, to kind of the starting point of the RISA again was any of these strategies are viable. Let's just try to figure out which is the right one for any particular individual. But I think all too often it's still the case where that's not the starting point. It's Three of those strategies are garbage. One of those strategies is the best for everybody, but then nobody agrees about which of the four <laughs> is the best for everybody. <laughs> and do you think that incentive is the key here or compensation is the, is the reason for this bias? So, you know, those of us who are, um, you know, remunerated or paid, um, you know, from, from a client portfolio, then we are biased to, you know, want that portfolio to be preserved, you know, invested rather than annuitized. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do think that can be an important factor and, and maybe not everything, but certainly, right, if you're charging a percent of the assets that you manage each year, and if using an annuity would require you to take assets out of that portfolio to put into the annuity, and then you can no longer charge on that, you certainly have a financial incentive to discourage people using annuities. And at the same time with annuities, at least in the United States, they're often sold on a commission basis. So there's a, a natural conflict of interest as well, where right. you want to push an annuity if that's what's going to pay you. So that sort of like financial compensation discussion, yeah, it does play an important role. There is movement now towards making that more agnostic as well, like having annuities that work within an assets under management framework, um, having annuity providers also be able to offer investment services or just work on a financial plan basis where you're just paid to build a financial plan where you're then agnostic about which tools would be incorporated into that plan. So hopefully we'll see more of that in the future of being able to use these tools with different types of financial advisor compensation models. But definitely I agree that that's a, a reason that helps to explain some of the biases out there. Yeah, we, we've obviously seen, you know, an uptick, not, not a massive rise in, um, you know, flat fee model in advice. Um, so, you know, 
I can only guess, you know, imagine that, that will continue, although I see, uh, you know, potential problems or, you know, challenges with that as well. So, um, in terms of your own approach to saving and planning for retirement, what does that, what does that look like? Mm -hmm. For me? Uh, so I, I am more of like a, my personal style is more risk wrap, but often with the annuities in the United States, you have to be 45 years old before you can get with living benefits. So I'm still too young to actually start to implement that. So I'm more like just, uh, I'm risk wrap does have comfort with the stock market. So I'm mostly invested in equities still at this point in my life cycle. I do have some bonds we have in the United States, these special, they're called I-bonds, which are inflation adjusted and don't have interest rate risk where you're protected from a decline in value, even if interest rates go up. And I'll actually also provide tax deferral on their interest. So I do get my I-bonds allocation, but then otherwise, for the most part, we've kind of got a, a well-diversified global portfolio of equities. And at some point, uh, especially when I reach ages where I'm allowed to do it, I'll start to shift into annuities as well. You know why I'm smiling? Because your career path models that, doesn't it? You know, like you, you're a tenured professor, you know, which is kind of your uh, baseline or annuity colleagues. But then you have all this entrepreneurial streak with McLean and, you know, retirement research and, and you know, am I right or, or wrong? <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. It's like that old question, are you a stock or a bond? My human capital definitely has a very bond-like reliable income component with then a lot right. of like equity on top of it with different right different ventures and things that I do as well so absolutely <laughs> that applies good stuff so um you know let's wrap this up with some sort of parting words you know from you where can we find you where can we find more of your work um you know what is it that you you like our audience to to know Oh, sure. Thanks. So my website is retirementresearcher.com. And if you'd like to just sign up, there's a weekly email that comes out Saturdays that just gives different updates, different articles and things. Uh, my newest book is the Retirement Planning Guidebook. I do have to be clear with your audience that I wrote it from the perspective of the United States. So everything's explained in terms of U.S. institutions with Social Security and the tax rules and so forth. But if you can keep an open mind about translating those into the U.K. perspective, uh, just I don't want anyone to be disappointed by expecting. Absolutely. I have a copy of all your books, including this one. And I, I you know, I, I started reading this, the Retirement Income Guidebook. And I know that when I get to all the parts where you go into Medicare, Medicaid and all that stuff, I'm going to skip that. What I'm looking for is the idea, the general concept. But no, it's a, it's a very, very valuable book that I, I would recommend. Uh, you know, to, to anyone listening. So, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And maybe in that regard, the UK version could be shorter because I have to have these full chapters on explaining health insurance and long-term care for, for retirement, yeah. where that's not always such a big issue in other countries. There's more of a government mandate or support to provide those services that we just don't have in the United States. <laughs> Agreed, agreed, agreed. Wei Fao, thank you very much for your time, for your wisdom, for the incredible work that you do. Uh, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's great catching up with you, Abraham.
I'll be remiss if I don't thank my incredible team who worked very hard to put this program together, led by my producer, Hannah Dickinson. Thank you, thank you very much guys. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Timeline App, the retirement planning software, and Bitfolio, the high-tech, low-cost, flat-fee model portfolio manager. And to you, our listeners, thank you for your time. I hope you've had as much fun listening to the program as we have making it. You can find more about the show at retirementals.co.uk and you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is Abraham on Money. Until next time, thank you and goodbye.